0: for the EU. Um, I'm pleased to see that we have almost a full house today. In Brussels, you never know. Uh, The number of registrants and the number of people attending, it's always uncertain. But we have a a very good uh, panel for discussion today. And what I wanted to do is started by introducing very briefly the, uh, uh, the, the participants in, in, in today's discussion. Of course, to my left, uh, Mauro Petriccione, the Director General in Clima. We all know Mauro, yeah, he's the Director General, he was Deputy Director General in Trade, which this is how I met him, because I, I used to belong to an organization that dealt a lot with, with trade, but has held many other positions in the EU. Kathleen Brandt, who is a Member of Parliament since 2009, Vice Chair of the Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats, members of ITRI, Belgian politician and a former Flemish Minister, and Dr. Silke Karscher, the Head of Division for EU Climate and Energy Policy European Climate Initiative Carbon Markets at BMUB in, in Berlin. So a very uh, well-balanced and uh, and knowledgeable panel. What are we here to discuss? We are here to discuss a new climate strategy for the EU. Now, I will remind you very briefly, and the the chair always has this compulsion of saying a few things at the beginning, so I have to say a few things at the beginning. Uh, There was a roadmap uh, for moving to a competitive low-carbon economy in 2050, released in 2011. Now, that roadmap required a uh, upgrading and updating. There were new major legislative developments, uh, and I'll quote a few of them internationally, the Paris Agreement, which apparently everybody says change everything, EU level, type of changes, governance of the Energy Union, the 2030 Climate and Energy Framework, things that have emerged since the 2011 when, in 2011 when the uh, 2050 roadmap was issued. We have a very significant report, the 1.5 degree report, and many changes in assumptions. The deployment and price of renewables, CCS, GDP, storage, all these things have changed dramatically. Now, as you all know, almost a year ago, uh, on March 22, 2018, the Council invited the Commission to present by the first quarter of 2019 a new proposal for a strategy for long-term EU GHG reduction in accordance with the Paris Agreement take into account the national plans. Now, in November, the Commission published its long-term vision, a clean planet for all. This is something that we had waited for a long time and something that we think and we hope will change, also change everything in Europe. Its aim is to confirm Europe's commitment to lead in global climate action and present a vision that can lead to a net zero emission by 2050, which is socially fair and cost efficient. What does it do? At least in the words of the Commission, it sets out the vision and a sense of direction, but not goes into new target or launching new policies. Now, the last thing I wanted to say, which I think is important, is that new, this new vision is also part, and this discussion, is part of what we call a year of ambition. And why do we call it a year of ambition? because internationally the focus is shifting from operationalization of the Paris Agreement to increasing the level of ambition. <coughs> that we have, we had the COP24 in Katowice, but that was a one point one milestone on the road. What we're heading to is the UN Secretary General's summit in September in New York. The NDCs must be reconfirmed and updated in preparation for the COP in 2020s. And parties are invited to mid-long-term climate strategies. So all these really point to a year of ambition, a year where the discussion of the EU long strategy is very relevant, it's important, but it's part of a, of a whole. It's not sitting in isolation. ERCST in Bruegel, together with York, we did a lot of work last year. We published a special report and a policy paper on options of developing the long-term climate strategy. I think that report is developed on, the, on both our websites and we, we we think it was a good effort. I will stop here and would like to invite uh, Mauro Petriccione to give us uh, uh, his uh, initial remarks on a clean planet for all and then we'll have commentary and discussions from our uh, panel participants. Mauro?
1: Thank you Andre. Well, good morning everybody. Does this uh, is this working. I, I, Let me bring it. No, it doesn't. Um, well, I'll try and shout. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, good morning, everybody. Let me start with an apology. I was late, I was in the parliament, and uh, I just couldn't manage to find a way to extricate myself from uh, from that discussion. So, sorry for keeping you waiting. Um, in exchange, in partial payment for that, I'll try not to make a very long introduction and give you the basics, and then leave more space for, um, for the debate and for the discussion. The First thing I'd like to say is that uh, when we were asked to present a long-term strategy, the first question we ask ourselves is, what is the underlying logic? And I think we have moved quite drastically from a logic of reduction of emissions to a logic of zero carbon, and eventually net zero greenhouse gas emissions. I'm saying this not because it's a, a theoretical point, but it has very practical consequences. If you're in a logic of reducing emissions as much as you can, almost anything that does is good enough. If you're in a logic of wanting to get to net zero, to climate neutrality by a certain date, and as you know, we are, the Commission is very clearly proposing 2050, then not anything is good enough. Then you have to make choices. Uh, and that is problematic because, for instance, conflicts with other things that we care about, like technological neutrality. Um, at some point, we will no longer have the time to let the market invent solutions and see what works best. At some point, we'll have to make choices. Uh, as choices were made to support renewables a few years ago, choices paid off. As other choices have been made that have paid off less uh, in the past, I mean, we are Put it this way, if we thought we were infallible, the world would keep reminding us that we're not. Um, so that was the first thing. Uh, secondly, um, André, you mentioned the 2011 roadmap. The 2011 roadmap was extremely useful, productive. It was the basis for the 2014 council decision on the minus 40%. And it's been the, it's been the legitimacy for the whole 2030 regulatory and legislative package but it had, you know, the fault of its times. Uh, And in particular, it had one uh, thought underlying, I wouldn't call it a a fault, it was what many of us thought at the time, um, that you could find big solutions to this big problem. Uh, And as you will remember, that roadmap relied very heavily on carbon capture and storage. Uh, That's a temptation still in many countries. Uh, all you have to do is to keep your system as it is, perhaps stop using some of the dirtier um, fossil fuels, and even there, you know, we still hear things like beautiful clean coal. Um, carbon capture and storage, you've solved the problem, you've decarbonized your economy, you haven't made radical changes. Uh, I think one of the big differences now is that we have evolved in our thinking that nothing less than a complete transformation of our economic system is capable of fixing the problem. The good story is that uh, a deep transformation of our economic system is probably what we need for all sorts of other reasons than fighting climate change. Um, I'm reasonably well placed, given my past, to know how much our current economic model isn't a catastrophe that many people say, but how it is fragile. Our competitiveness is under pressure. Our technological lead is being eroded. Uh, Our trade balance, well, we would have a great trade surplus if if we weren't paying the energy bill. Uh, We would have over 200 billion euros in uh, trade surplus every year, if we weren't paying 266 billion euros every year in, in importing fossil fuels. So we have a system, the business as usual, which is still working, it's still producing the goods, but it's fragile, it's under pressure. Uh, you see the social pressure in our countries. You see the uh, difficulties in, uh, that we have in keep it up, and we are at the stage where our industrial fabric is badly in need of modernization. The, sit- the picture, of course, is very different in different places, in different sectors, but even within sectors we see a growing gap between uh, leading companies who have the right technologies, who have the capital to invest, who are looking at the future, and the laggards. And people who do not have enough money to invest, who are just holding on. And uh, we know what the possible consequences are uh, on uh, on employment. Disclosure, I come from Taranto, in southern Italy. Uh, Ilva country, steel country not a pretty picture of what can happen to uh, an industrialised area. So the good news in many ways is that we need to spend money to modernise and renovate our economy. And we have a choice of whether we do it on a business as usual uh, model, which costs us about 2% of our GDP every year in new investment, or whether we do it towards a clean, decarbonised, climate-neutral economy our estimated would cost us about 2.8 of our GDP a year. Uh, an investment in uh, not only in a more efficient economy, in a more competitive economy. I recall that uh, green technology are the one area where we're still top of the league in terms of new patents, uh, but also in terms of health, in terms of avoided death, in terms of better quality of life. So that's the, that's the broad picture. Now. I think this audience probably knows what's in the strategy, so I'm not going to go into great detail, but I'll be happy to answer any detailed question. No. Hope to have the answer to any detailed question to be to be more precise. Um, but you've seen the eight scenarios that we have. Those are not predictions. We do not expect the European economy to develop along any of those eight scenarios. Uh, we will not necessarily act to propose, to enact those scenarios. But they demonstrate the range of the possible. The range of the possible with technologies that we have. Some of them need refinement, some of them need scaling up. There is still a research uh, and development and an investment challenge for many of these technologies. But they exist, they've been proven, they work. Uh, We're not relying, again, on the silver bullet. We're not relying on the solution that uh, at once uh, uh, solves all our problems. And if you see the increase in ambition from one scenario to the other, you also see the increase in complexity. Uh, The scenarios that the Commission recommends are those capable of reaching climate neutrality by 2050, and they're unsurprisingly the more complex scenarios. In fact, those that more adequately reproduce the complexity of our current economic system. So I think we should not uh, labor under the illusion that we can actually simplify the way our economy runs. We are a developed economy and we're complex and we will remain complex even as we decarbonize and we go towards carbon neutrality. Uh, You've also seen the different building blocks that we have articulated our analysis around. But at the end of the day, it's always the same. Energy supply needs to be zero carbon by mid-century. Uh, what we project is 85% uh, renewables with wind playing, the, the lion, having the lion's share. Uh, we see on the basis of current policies by member states that there will be a share of nuclear uh, because a number of member states have chosen to retain uh, nuclear power. What will happen in 30 years' time, I don't know. Uh, Nobody in the commission claims to know, but that's what we project on the basis of existing policies. But it is clear that it has to be zero carbon. If we don't have a zero carbon energy supply, we get nowhere. Industry has to be near zero carbon because, yes, we're in a good situation today in uh, in terms of sinks and in terms of how we manage our land. Uh, but the competition for uh, applications where you cannot decarbonize 100% will be tough. So the fewer those applications exist, the better off we are. Mobility is a creation. Mobility is also very closely related to the energy supply. Uh, clearly, we're moving towards a massive electrification of our mobility system, but we're also moving towards other technologies: hydrogen, biofuels perhaps synthetic fuels, even though the energy implications of synthetic fuels are very, very important. Again, the question is, what's the mix uh, of of how we power our mobility system and what does our mobility system look like? What our cities look like in 30 years' time? What is the spatial distribution of populations, jobs, and residences, and what kind of transport do we need in, in 2030? Uh, And finally, the land. As I said, we're not doing badly, but we can do a lot better. We will need to use more land for biomass. Um, We can't afford to do that at the expense of our uh, our carbon sink. So that is going to be a very delicate equation. And then finally, we have looked at Europe as if it were an island. Uh, We did that deliberately. We wanted to show again the realm of the possible not to project what we expect Europe to become, but to see what could be possible, and is it worth making the effort? Can we afford it? Um, And I think we succeeded in showing that this is both possible and affordable, with an effort, and it's not gonna be a small effort. Um, But, of course, Europe isn't an island. So we will have, in the real policy world, to tackle issues like imported deforestation, the impact of imported products on our carbon footprint, our impact on the rest of the world in terms of carbon footprint. So the picture becomes even more complicated, uh, but uh, at least I think we have been able to show that uh, all, this, all this can be done. It's essentially an investment challenge. The resources are there, but it is a private resource that they have to be directed towards the transformation. The mechanism of financing need to be changed. We've started the process with sustainable finance, but that's only the beginning. We have to find channels that make it attractive for our finance to pour money into low-carbon uh, solutions. Um, and then we have, obviously, the issue of the social transition underlying all this. Now, the issue is not different than the one we face already today. There are other mega-trends that are going to change dramatically the way our economy works. And they will have an impact on employment, they will have an impact on the distribution of jobs and the distribution of skills. We have to tackle them. Climate adds a new dimension, but in both directions. It adds sometimes more pressure to the social picture, sometimes it offers alternatives. In the past few years, we have created 4 million green jobs in Europe. There are new industries. There are new opportunities that the green transformation creates. Problem is, very often they are not the same. They are not the same jobs, they are not the same people, they are not in the same places. Uh, So the calculation many make to add and subtract mechanically uh, jobs created and jobs lost uh, is very misleading. Uh, It's much more complicated than that. But again, it is not radically different then the situation we have to face anyway, even if we wanted to keep a business as usual model, we would still have a serious problem of social dislocation and a serious problem of how we change our workforce and how we adapt it. Uh, just to give you one example, think of the possibility of 3D printing the movable part of a combustion engine. That can wipe out a segment of our industry, just as fast as moving from, electric, from combustion to electric engines. And that is going to happen. 3D printing movable parts is around the corner. So it's not as if by doing nothing um, we are safe in terms of our social model, in terms of our employment policies. Uh, we have an issue that we need to tackle anyway. Um, what's going to happen next? And then I'll stop there. The Commission has been very clear. This is too big to be solved with uh, the Council taking a resolution, adopting conclusion, the European Parliament passing a resolution, and then we're all happy, and then uh, we go in the Commission follow with a raft of legislative proposals. It's not as simple as that. Uh, We're trying to foster a Europe-wide debate. Uh, Member States are doing the same, we're very happy to see that. I think we need the strategy to be debated in depth, not only in Brussels, in the institutions, but in national institutions, in national parliaments. In many countries, this goes further down to the regional level, to the local level, and not only in uh, countries with a federal structure. Uh, this is a very good thing. And uh, we hope that Member States will take a little time to have this uh, deep debate. Uh, if we can manage to conclude this debate by the end of this year, it will be a good thing. It will be a good thing, and if that conclusion is the endorsement of the objective of climate neutrality by 2050, uh, the consequences could be really big in terms of the legitimacy of public action in that direction, public action at the level of the institutions and at the the level of member states. Um, Then we have, I think, 10 years to set in place the right policies deploy the financial resources that we need for investment, um, see whether our current legislative package, which is very ambitious, but not good enough for our Paris uh, Agreement commitments, is capable of making the market move behind the hump. It is perfectly possible that these policies, in some cases at least, could be enough for the market to develop its own solutions uh, and uh, make uh, further regulatory action unnecessary. We shall see. That's why we have a raft of uh, review clauses in all the legislation. But unless this happens, we know that the legislation we have laboriously put in place will not be enough to get us to climate neutrality by 2050. Uh, if you project it in linear fashion, that's not good enough. So. We will need to look at, do we need more legislation, do we need new targets, Uh, do we need new solutions? Early to say, uh, and I think our economic system needs a minimum of stability to start operating change, but we need to keep this uh, very closely under control, uh, and we have to make sure that we act in, in a timely fashion. So, as I said, for the next two mandates of the Commission, Uh, Watch this space. If we can put the right policies and deploy the right resources over the next 10 years This is doable and it's doable in a way that would make our economy stronger and more resilient Um, And that alone should be a powerful example for everybody else in the world Um, If it doesn't work, well, if it doesn't work, we all have a big problem. Thank you.
0: Does this work? Yes, it works. Well, I, thanks, Mauro. Thank you very much for a very sobering uh, opening remarks. I think we're looking at a brave new world, a world that would like to imagine at some point, maybe during the day, what a day in that world would look like, because that's what reality is. Try to imagine what our life would be in 2015, a new world of the 2050s. That would be a very also very interesting exercise to go through. But before we engage in further debate, I'd like to invite the rest of the panel here, Silke and, and, uh, and Georg and, and uh, Kathleen van Bremt if you are, would like to join us. And uh, would like to uh, start with your uh, comments and, uh, and your initial remarks following the um, uh, introduction by, by Mauro Petricone. So Silke. You are uh, you're from one of the member states that is known to be ambitious, and one of the member states that is also quite reliant on energy sources that will need to change in time quite rapidly possibly. Uh, how will you respond? How do you react to this uh, initial remarks, obviously to the, uh, the plan that has been put forward by the, the Commission, by the vision?
2: Well, let's start with we don't have a detailed government position. Is this working? No? Okay, so I'll use this. So, hello everybody and thanks for the invitation. It's good to be here and it's always good to hear your view on the long-term perspective of Europe and your last words, it's doable. I think that's very, very good to hear. Um, So, we don't have a detailed position on the... um, Long term strategy yet in Germany. Um, I think most countries don't, some do, um, because as you said, the discussions are still ongoing. Um, in Germany, we have the specific situation that we are right now discussing some very deep. Issues on climate policy internally. So, we've had the so called coal commission, I think most people called it that. It was actually called the commission on growth, jobs, and structural change, which is more correct because it was um, as much on phasing out coal as on how do we work with the structural change. The commission has. Made the, their recommendations, and I can answer questions on that later. Um, and now they have to be put into um, into laws, into policies. At the same time, we are discussing the framework law on climate change that my ministry has proposed, that will put budgets um, to the different sectors. So it will be it will follow essentially the. ESD concept to have different budgets for the different uh, for the different years, uh, but break it down to sectors Um, and last but not least we are in parallel. We are working on a um, Program of measures that will actually be able to meet those targets. So that's the situation in Germany Um, and um, so I can give you the views from the Um, perspective of the Ministry of Environment and um, also add some uh, figures from a study on Europe 2050 um, that the German EPA um, has commissioned. I think one of the most important things you said, Maurer, was there will be a transition and we have to face challenges anyway that we need to respond to. And I think that's a very important thing. We cannot decide that there's not going to be a transition. There are all the megatrends you mentioned, but one more megatrend that you implicitly mentioned, but that's also there, is climate change. If you don't address climate change, climate change will be there, and that will be a huge transition, and economically and socially, obviously, it will be much more challenging than anything that um, we're imagining now when looking at the scenarios that the Commission has um, put forward. So I think, and I think everybody sort of knows that, but it has not become emotionally rooted in all the actors of the discussion that we cannot decide that everything stays the same because it simply won't. The only thing we can decide is what transition we want, and I think it's very important to reiterate that because this is something that has to sink in because many people, also many voters, still think, oh, I want everything to stay the same, and that's just an option, that's not an offer. Um, We've been using the word sustainable for that, um, and it's a bit of an awkward word, many people can't really associate anything with that and in Germany we've started to use a a, a other word, it's called Enkeltauglich, I think it's a very beautiful word, it essentially means fit for our grandchildren. So whatever we do needs not to work right now but needs to be a solution that also works for our grandchildren. now just just a few additional facts from from a study that the um, german e p a has commissioned and I think it's important to to look at different figures from from different studies and what they did is they didn't um, model different pathways they just looked at one scenario what could the world look like in two thousand and fifty if um what could Europe look like in 2050 if it was decarbonized? What could a net zero scenario look like, a net zero world in 2050? And they came to the same conclusion um, that you did. It's doable. It's a, you have to use the technologies that we have. They were very conservative in their modeling. They only used technologies that t- technically exist, that have been proven. Um, they, um, and didn't use bioenergy um, in the sense of um, growing biomass for energy. They used all that space for, um, for having more things. Um, and they, the only bioenergy they used was um, waste and residues, so there was um, a limitation. Also, they didn't include CCS. If we would use CCS, that would give us more leeway, and um, they assumed that um, concerning nuclear, only the power plants that are being built now would still be in operation in 2050. Of course, that might be different, but that was, again, a conservative assumption, and yet they came to the conclusion, net zero in 2050, is doable um, with a increase of the sink to about 500 million tons and a reduction of the current emissions um, by 92 to 93 percent to around 390 million tons per year. So that's maybe a few few more figures that essentially substantiate what the Commission has put forward. Um, so I'd like to close with that and say again that we need to remember that there will be a transition and the only thing that we can choose is what transition it will be.
0: Thank, thank you, Silke. Uh, I'll turn to Kathleen Rembrandt. Uh, the European Parliament adopted a resolution on the vision last week, a very ambitious one. I actually went through it and read it about twice and with was great attention, uh, very ambitious. Net zero by twenty fifty by the latest increase in twenty-three N D C reduction to fifty-five percent by twenty thirty, immediate phase out of European and national fossil fuel subsidies, thirty-five percent research expenditure, quite a a long list of very ambitious things. You have the floor.
3: Thank you very much. Is this working?
0: Yes. If not, is it working? yeah. yeah. I think I it's think working.
3: It's, okay. it is. Um, First of all, um, I was a little bit surprised that you introduced Germany as one of the countries that are leading in Europe. Um, I have to say, I've been um, during this term I've been uh, um, the, the, the chair of the, the Dieselgate committee. I know people mm-hmm. remembered, you know, the software. Um, problems, uh, well, problems uh, we had, and um, out of that came a report. And we also worked a lot on CO2 reductions of cars, and there we we faced with Germany a very tough um, um, defender of, uh, of diesel technology um, instead of going into electrification. I'll come to that, that in a second. So ju- I'm not saying that to, 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 to make a controversy with, with Germany. I just want to say a lot of countries have their own issues. Eh? Um, you might be very advanced in, for instance, um, leaving nuclear and trying to have an uh, a um, uh, different energy system uh, going into renewable energy but at, at the same time be very conservative when it comes to full electri- electrification of uh, of the car um, uh, of the car industry and our mobility <coughs> system um, I think if we look to um, countries in Europe that are advanced it's for sure uh, the, the countries in the north they do do make a difference these days um, in in their policies I have to say the Netherlands are changing very much. Um, and my country is really lagging behind, but um, um, these days we have all these young people coming, uh, coming on the street, and they are actually the ones that are making the, the real game-changing uh, initiative. So um, myself, I'm, I'm like 10 years engaged into climate policy, I've been in the Committee, now I'm in the Committee, but I also lead my political group on climate policy. Um, And I have to say, um, there's been huge battles in the Parliament. Uh, The fact that we had a very, very, very ambitious um, uh, um, resolution last week is also due to these young people, because you see the change also amongst the politicians, that also the politicians more to the right wing always saying, look, look, everything needs to be um, uh, in, in line with industrial policies. Also these people, are moving into what you, you said very very well. I think in your introduction, um, we need to get into that transition, and there will be only one pathway, and that will be completely climate neutral. And now we have to decide what will be the main issues um, uh, to work on. Uh, so, there is things are changing now rapidly, and I, I think we have to grasp that moment to make that really that change. Um, Uh, Coming then to the the resolution of last week, um, I invite you all to read it, Uh, you read it twice, that's amazing, Uh, um, but I'm... It was was in the evening. Um, But I I have to say, yes, I'm very proud of that resolution because it's been voted with um, a vast, large majority, and that is very important. You can can think you you are on the right side of history, but if you're the only one or you're you're a small party to do so, you're not changing things. eh? So we we did that with a large majority. Uh, That means that we urge the commission, and especially also the council, um, uh now to take action uh, we 're at the end of the term, so this is a preparation of the next five years to come uh, that is that is uh, extremely important. There are two things I want to outline because I think they're they're absolutely very very important um, uh, i if If people ask me um, what is the stance where does Europe stand when you look to the global world um, in terms of climate, I always start. By saying the positive things about the things that we did in Europe, uh, and especially the last five years, um, uh, we changed the ETS law for the better. It could have been better, but for the better uh, in the right direction. Um, we have the effort sharing res- reg- regulation. The, the two of them are the most important regulatory frameworks to make sure that we uh, that we have um, that we do what we do on the climate uh, policies. But if you combine them and you also look everything we did in the energy sector, we had a new um, adjustment of uh, the renewables directive, energy uh, efficiency, the market design, everything on energy. <coughs> if you look at them all together and um, you also take into account um, that we did an improvement on the CO2 of the cars, not, not good enough, but we did an improvement, um, uh, and you bind them all together, I think all specialists will say that's a good job, but absolutely not good enough. That means that um, if you you take um, um, the the end, the 2050 um, uh, climate neutral um, uh, goals, and you take the Paris Agreement, where we all agree it should be not two, but well below the two degrees, and that's one and a half, then it's not good enough. Then we are not on the pathway to meeting up to our engagement in Paris. Um, And what is really getting a little bit on my nerve is that it's good to have a broad consensus on the 2050 strategy, but if we do not change the 2030 targets, we will not get to the 2050. It's just not fair enough to our children and grandchildren that we men- men- mentioned that we say, mm-hmm, we agree on the 2050 strategy, but in the meanwhile, we do business as usual. Because if you do not adjust the 2030 strat- uh, the tw- 2030, um, um, um Goals—it's just not good enough. We did that in our um, resolution, and we urge to, to, the, to the Commission to follow the, the democracy because we're the one and only democratic elected Parliament um, in in European, uh, in all the European institutions, uh, to come up with a proposal on that. I think it's very important. That was not a broad majority, I have to say. There there were um, uh, other political groups that were not um, um, ready to to take that on. Second thing I want to outline is one one of the amendments um, uh, of mine, together with some colleagues that didn't make it. um, uh, That's uh, the the, the amendment on the climate law. I think it's very important. What I said before, um, the ETS, the effort sharing, all the others, um, they do not meet up um, uh, to everything that we need to do, and it's very important that in Europe we establish a broad climate directive where we built in our engagements of Paris um, and, and make also a real effort sharing also amongst the member states. Um, uh, for me, that are the, the most important things to do right at the moment. And then we have to go into to a lot of, of these sectors um, in the in the the recommendations of the AMIS committee, the committee on uh, on the dieselgate scandal. We did vote with a majority um, uh, the phase out of uh, the fossil fuel cars, the combustion engine cars, by 2035. Um, We didn't achieve that in uh, in the CO2 directive um, uh, on the cars. But I think that sort of um, overall brought um, uh, regulation at the European level is extremely important uh, others talked about the fact that industry no- needs to know where they stand uh? um, it's, it's about time uh, to, to say to the car industry this is the line, this is the red line this is not the, the moment to cross um, I think that's extremely important you will not otherwise convince people um, uh, to, to step into the electrification um, of the cars okay. many other things to say but that will all be handled I think uh, later on
0: Thank, thank, thank you very much, Kathleen. It, in, indeed, I think I, I recommend it as a, as a reading, because it is a very comprehensive document, a very ambitious document. Not everybody, as you mentioned, not everybody would agree with all the points, but certainly uh, the Parliament is ambitious. Your, are my, my colleague that we have done the work last year together, and we're co-hosting this. I just happen to be the chair, and you're you you are, you are able to say a lot more than me, because I'm chairing, and I'm not should
4: be saying too much. Um, I would like to um, to kind of zoom out a bit and uh, and offer my perspective on what I think is the uh, uh, is the division and what is the, uh, what is not division and um, in terms of the document. So for me, the main purpose of the uh, of the document, uh, so the twenty five pages plus the four hundred pages in annex and then the annex to the annex, uh, is that. It puts out the ambition so it says net zero is feasible by 2050 and it essentially iterates in very different colors and, uh, and puts meat to the bone that this 2050 ambition of net zero would be feasible and would actually be better than, uh, than alternative scenarios. So that's in my view the, the single most important point of this document. Um, but it's also interesting to think about what this document is not. And uh, when when Andre and I started about 18 months ago to think about a new climate strategy for the EU, was not yet discussion in uh, in town on that, we thought essentially, it would need three documents to uh, to to make really a difference. And the first document indeed would be a vision that sets out kind of some some sort of targets. But then you need two other documents. You need a uh, communication to the UNFCCC that needs to come relatively quickly because time is short. And then there's a third document that you would need, which is a sort of a new roadmap or a sort of a new. Um, uh, European uh, uh, national energy and climate plan that essentially brings together what the member states are doing and tries really to uh, to look into the trade-offs that are there and tries to uh, to to show where decisions need to be taken now and in in which direction. So what we currently don't have in this in this vision document and in our view uh, for good reasons is we don't really think about technology pathways. So there's different scenarios, but they do not really spell out technology pathways in the sense that they think about choices. So do we have to choose today whether we still invest into, into gas pipelines? Um, do we want to invest additionally in uh, uh, in new um Types of power, uh, certain types of power plants, or in uh, in uh, in certain types of housing, uh, we do not really address the issue of how this all is going to work together in terms of uh, of coupling of the uh, of the different sectors. So the technology pathway is not yet really spelled out, and it does not really give investment advice to um, uh, to uh, uh, to capital owners on where to put their money on. And the, um, and the second element that is not yet into uh, uh, into the vision document is is the policy pathway. So what is essentially the policies that are bringing us to uh, to net zero? And it starts on the on the very top. It does not really discuss on the interrelation between member states and uh, and the EU in terms of governance. Um, there is no real gap analysis in terms of what is the policy gap uh, uh, and uh, in in which areas uh, more needs to be done. There are interesting side effects that. Um, uh, that are a underrepresented so uh, just to, to mention two that we have uh, worked on quite a bit in the in the past one is distributional effects so we think if you go for full decarbonization uh, or close to full decarbonization you will need a suit of very intrusive policies and these intrusive policies will have significant distributional effects and you need to take those uh, distributional effects more into account and not only on the uh, on the labor market side but also on the consumer side and also on the uh, on the fiscal effects if we go for world with very high carbon taxes replacing taxes on uh, um, on road fuel and um, uh, and other things so we, you also will have to, to reshape your fiscal system dramatically so there's a a, a suite of interesting policy questions that uh, that need to be uh, need to be discussed when we really want to uh, to uh, uh, to to prove our uh, economic and political system for decarbonization so the main point that i want to make is that what we should discuss is trade-offs and we should come to the point where we where we have a societal discussion on trade-offs i know that's very difficult because it's uh, it's politically uh, the uh, the most critical point to discuss whether we want a very resilient transition that costs a bit more whether we want a a very cost-effective transition, but that is not socially just, whether we want to put uh, uh, some parts of our competitiveness uh, at stake, uh, but have a, uh, have a more quick uh, transition. So there's a couple of trade-offs and I think they are real and they need to be discussed. And to have such a discussion what we need is to go beyond kind of um, documents being proposed by, by just policy circles, but we need to have an open debate and in that sense I think the, uh, the approach by the European Commission to come up with a vision and then open this discussion is very helpful, but we need some focal points for this discussion and uh, I've been Always advocating for more uh, open modeling of those questions because a lot of those questions are very quantitative, and we need to uh, to, uh, to to see the numbers. We need to see what is happening on the member states level, which we don't have the data yet from the vision, and we need to uh, to see what happens in the different sectors and uh, and who is winning and who is losing. So, in that sense, I would urge the uh, the, uh, the policy makers around the uh, around the table to uh, uh, to really kind of bring more data and allow us to, uh, to, uh, to study them more carefully to have a more informed debate thank you they're, they're
0: all uh, look now this, we get into the, the period where we're supposed to have a bit of a discussion with the panel, but let's not keep it artificial. At some point, we're going to transition a discussion with, with the audience. But before I do that, Mauro, I want to come back. Maybe I didn't pick it up. I, I, think, I, can, maybe, I, I think I picked it up. And he said markets will do what markets will do, but we have to make choices. And I think that that was an important thing that you said. Also, to become blunt, I come, you know, I, I don't have an obsession anymore with, with ETS, but I think it's an important element, an important element of our toolbox. Looking in the, in, within the document, there's very little reference. I think there's one reference to, to carbon pricing. I think there's one. So, can you comment on that a little bit? Well, let's make sure technology works.
1: Okay. Absolutely. Let's make sure technology works. Maybe we start with that. Um, We shouldn't forget one thing. We work in a very complex democratic system. Very complicated, but very effective. I'm sorry, I spent 32 years in the institutions. I don't believe that the union is not effective. If you look, if you step back and you see where we were 30 years ago, where we are today, you see the difference. The fact that on a daily, daily basis, we work like a combustion engine, up and down. And in the meantime, it can blow up any time. But, and we have to move to an electric engine, which is much smoother. And it's not an easy task. Nothing more will happen if we do not have an objective of climate neutrality. Make no mistakes. That change in logic from, oh, let's do our little additional bit to decarbonize and it's very good and we should feel very good with ourselves and very proud of ourselves, to, can we actually get a zero emissions economy in 2050? It's a huge mental and political step, without which no policy step will have legitimacy. The commission could come up with all sorts of fantastic ideas, I mean, first of all, I don't believe that the college, the next college, will come up with fantastic ideas, because we have the same debate within the college we have within the parliament, within national governments, within the council, unless there is an overall legitimacy As I said earlier, the 2011 roadmap had many flows, but it did produce a 2014 European Council conclusion. Those conclusions produced the past five years (coughs) of intensive legislative activity. Now, we know that's not enough, but you're not gonna get anything more unless you start again from the analysis, and that's what we've done, and the political legitimacy of a higher end objective. Then you can start talking about the policies to make that happen. That's why we're saying the number one priority for the first few months is to have a debate in Europe and to make sure Europe as a whole comes up with a convinced and convinced endorsement of the objective of climate neutrality. In this kind of audience, we all talk as if it was a key. It isn't. We haven't persuaded everybody. Not everybody agrees. Even in the European Parliament, which is, from, on climate, one of the most progressive institutions in the continent, you don't have an absolute, you have a big majority, but you don't have everybody on board. Um, we, elsewhere, you know that the number of people who are convinced is much less than it is in the European Parliament. Absolutely. Absolutely. We need to bring enough people on board, enough governments on board, we can endorse this objective. Then you can start talking about what are the technology pathways. Then you can start talking about what is the role of the market versus the role of policies. Then you can start talking about trade-offs. Not if you don't put them in the context of this objective, because then you end up again in a logic of doing too little too late. I'm not contesting that what we have done in the past five years is not good enough for our Paris commitments and our, and our goals. I am contesting that it's not transformative. It is hugely transformative. And here it comes to the point of markets, uh, André. Is it transformative enough for markets to change? I don't know, but we have the mechanism to monitor and find out, and if we have a 2050 climate neutrality objective, we will also have the political legitimacy to take remedial action, without waiting for 2030, to use the review clauses, to propose different and additional legislation if we have to, but if we don't have that legitimacy, yes, we can propose it, but it's going to be you know the commission whistling in the wind. Uh, Now, I've spent, like you, a lot of my life working with markets, with market operators. In our society, if you create the right incentive, if you give the right signal, markets can do a lot, can even do miracles sometimes. Do they always? That's a different story. So, the ETS, now with the new reform, which hasn't yet entered into force, by the way, uh-huh. is already producing a lot more impact than it has throughout its history. I think that's a sign that this was the right reform. You can debate, as you said, you know, did we do enough? Could have we have done something different? But overall, it was the right reform to do. It's beginning to produce the goods. Is it enough? Of course not. We will have, you know, if we're going towards the climate neutrality objective, we will have to ask ourselves questions, you know, do we extend the UATS? Do we bring more sectors in? What we have done is not what we believe is the absolute great solution. It's a combination of trying to do the right thing and trying to do what's possible. If If what's possible isn't good enough, then we have to move forward. But again, we do need the political legitimacy to move forward. And at the moment, I can see that coming. I can see the debate in the institution. I can see the debate in member states. I can see the debate in the street. Um, But it hasn't coalesced yet into an objective with a real rally behind. Uh, And the fact that we keep talking to people who want to make things happen, shouldn't make us blind there's a lot of people out there who don't want to make things happen <coughs> because they have vested interest and even more people who simply don't know who are simply waiting to make up their mind um i think you know, when we talk about the bubble that's what we're talking about we keep talking to we do have a risk of becoming self-referential um and the, whereas the key point I very much like the way Silke put it. We are going to transition. We have a choice of which kind of transition. I would add the gloss to that. We have the choice of whether we drive a transition or whether we endure a transition. And it makes a big difference also in terms of how we handle the social aspect, how we handle dislocation, how we handle the distribution effects, what fiscal policies we do. But I put it this way, fiscal policies, the Commission has very little ability to propose fiscal policy. of course we can propose it. What are the chances that if the Commission invents a fiscal policy out of the blue, uh, anybody's going to listen? If you have an objective which is endorsed by all member states after a thorough, deep national debate, then you can start having a serious discussion in the Council, okay guys, what fiscal policies do you need to support this? You are in a different world, in a different universe. Yeah, I, one thing that,
0: you know, coming, I remember in the morning after in, in Paris, I remember looking at this this document, which, you know, it kind of emerged and it was some article of a surprise to some of us. Some of them we expected them in that shape. And and my first thought was that the one, you know, lower than uh, Two degrees was, was ambitious, but the real game changer was the carbon neutrality by mid-century, because that is a very different world indeed. That changes everything, and that puts us in a in a world that you you said it's still a case very difficult to imagine. That we need to make, make that leap of faith and understand and try to imagine that. Catherine, let me ask you a question. You you, you refer, reference to the, the Paris Agreement. And when we started talking last year with Georg about long-term strategy, that was before the, you know, the, the council and, and the, the, the mandate and the whole thing. So we're a little bit ahead of the game, if you want. And one of the things that we said, we looked at it, and said, well, what about if, is there a case to be made, or is there a question to be made, a scenario to be made, where the Paris Agreement says that everybody moves in parallel? you know, that Europe becomes more ambitious and Chinese become more ambitious, the Americans become, they all move in parallel. What if, what if, which is not inconceivable, somebody, I mean, we continue to go like this, but our American friends continue to go like this, and such such the parallel disappears. Is this a scenario that's legitimate because we, we took a lot of flack at that time from a lot of people, this is something they shouldn't talk about because this is something self-fulfilling is negative and so on, but it is possible reality. So it's something that we need to see how much we engage ourselves, and how much we put at stake of our competitiveness. And Europe is rich, can afford a lot of it, can afford it all, how? What, what's your view on that?
3: <clears throat> Whether or not, it, well, in, in my viewpoint, it's absolutely not legitimate, um, but it's happening. So we have to take that into account um, for the time being. Although it's, it's, um, it's more gray than the black and white we always see when we look to the United States. We all know that um, there are amazing, amazing things happening in some of the states, California. But even in, 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 in states like Texas, things are changing. So um, there's the, the, the rhetoric of the president um, and his cabinet. And, and, and still, a lot of things are also happening at a political level. Um, uh, so it's it's not black and white, but we should not be naive for the time being. You can consider the United States not no longer, although technically they are still in Paris. Eh? It takes a lot of time, but in their minds, in that sense, I absolutely agree uh, with what you said. Um, you need political legitimacy for the for the time being. In the state, there is no political legitimacy to. Um, uh, implement the Paris Agreement. And then you have uh, a a very blurry situation when it comes to policy making. So it's something I cannot defend. Um, Also, in an an ethical point of view, I think um, uh, the Western part um, of the globe is um, more responsible for the situation where, where we're in than the emerging economies, and let alone the economies that still do not have access to energy at all, um, uh, let alone have the discussion on the access to clean energy. I'm, I'm thinking about large parts um, of Africa, some parts of Asia. So the, um, there is a moral duty. Um, and in that sense, I am proud of what we do in Europe. Uh, uh, not good enough, needs more ambition. You need the parliament to push and push. Uh, but but um, we do take up that responsibility. I've seen uh, uh, Commissioner, Keniete, for instance, uh, do his thing in Paris, and it's not only the doing of the, Europe- of the European level, but it's also the doing of the of the European level that we have a Paris agreement. Um, but we do have to adjust um, our policy thinking to the fact that we are losing the states and that China is is a, is a completely other... And a completely other story. Yeah? They 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 do try to implement Paris. They they do not have the problems that democracies have. So they can they can go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I don't don't get me wrong. I love our democracy. Um, uh, but but it's another it's another it's another uh, system. But let me give you an example of how the policy framework in Europe needs to change. That's what I did in the voting last week together with the majority of the Parliament. Um, uh, saying we should not reopen the negotiations uh, on trade with the United States. Um, I know the commission wants to do that. Parts of the council want to do that. They have their reasoning for that. But if you start giving other reasons to start negotiating again with the United States on a new trade agreement, um, that would be such a wrong signal to give. I think we cannot make trade agreements with important economies if they do not. Do not. Um, uh, get in line with the Paris Agreement, implement it, um, and, and that needs to be. And, and there, you need to change the way you look at trade overall. I think. Yeah, I think we should. But um, we don't have a majority yet in the Parliament on that. But I absolutely <coughs> believe that uh, since climate is such a vital um, um, uh, challenge, we should say we will not negotiate any longer with economies that do not implement Paris. Or we can use a trade to make sure they implement Paris when we look to, to um, uh, uh, emerging economies. So it, 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 it can be a nuanced um, uh, implementation, but the, um, the headline should be cl- quite clear. Um, trade should be ch- subject of um, uh, climate policy.
0: Thanks, Cicely. Uh, Silke, I'll see, uh, talks about the political legitimacy which is really key because it is a transformation. You know, I, I'm some way back from Eastern Europe and we went to a transformation there which was sometime not well managed, sometimes not managed at all. It wasn't very good as a whole generation sometime that was lost. So obviously this is a much bigger transformation, one of the biggest transformations that we've done, if you want uh, on command transformation, regulatory transformation as opposed to a, a, a natural transformation. The coal commission is one example that you've implemented. Spain has had quite an, ex- quite an extensive consultation on, on coal, uh, coal phase-out. you want to comment a, bit, a little bit on that? On, on, on if you are not on the social only, the social aspect, but in general, what, you know, how important is this, this, this legitimacy, this, this, this process of gaining the support and the understanding of, of, of the electorate, of the, the people of Europe?
2: So maybe that is working now. Okay. There. okay. Um, well, I think it's it's clear that we can't do it without the electorate because we're living in a democracy, so we can't we don't have an alternative. Um, to building the consensus and talking to the people, bringing the people together um, and having a process like we had in the Commission for Jobs, Growth, and Structural Change, also known as the Coal Commission, um, is, is one way of doing that, to having round tables, I think the Netherlands have, have a long tradition of, of bringing people together and building that consensus <laughs> and we have no alternative to doing that. At the same time, of course, it's a slow process and not everybody wants the same. So, um, obviously it seems easier if if you had some command and control structure where you could simply say, okay, now we are going to do this. Um, but this is simply not going to work. I think what's, what's important when we are having this consensus building and when we are having this discussion on on just transition, on fairness, that we don't reduce it to um, some people now lose their jobs and they have to be compensated. Because that's a very, very narrow view of what is just, because what about the people who lose their land because it's flooded because of climate change? What about the people who haven't been born yet or who have just been born? What is their say? And I think what's what's a bit difficult in in the consensus building discussions is that um, the people present in those discussions do not necessarily represent everybody affected by decisions taken. And I think um, you mentioned the young people in the street, they aren't even voters yet, and yet the decisions we take now will affect them more than than us who are sitting here because um, things will accelerate in the future. So I think it's very important to have a wider concept of what just transition is. I think that's, that's one thing I'd, I'd like to take you home, that that, that needs to be a broader concept. So, You're getting... and, and Sorry. M- maybe if I can also ask a question, um, maybe Mao, you could also comment a little on how the um, European endeavor is perceived internationally because you've also been traveling with the proposal and shown it to the friends in China, etc.
5: Mao? Well,
1: I'll try briefly on that. Uh, I mean, first. The the whole commission, from the president to the desk officers who've been writing these analyses. is persuaded that if this transformation does not keep us a competitive and prosperous economy, it will not happen. So a logic where Europe decides to pay for the mistakes of the past, it's not going to happen. Secondly, in that logic, we're not going to have anybody else copy the example. So, the economic transformation we're talking about, which keeps our economy competitive and prosperous, and we do believe it's possible, and I think we have done our share to show that it is possible, has several objectives. One is to make it, make Europeans want it. That's the first point. The second one is to offer a model to our partners that they can also follow. And frankly, our partners are not insane. I mean, there's absolutely no reason why if you offer them a competitive carbon-free economic model, they should choose to continue with a carbon-intensive model. Um, if you look at China, the Chinese are trying to do the right thing. The Chinese are on the same curve where we are. We're way behind on that curve. They have a bigger problem in terms of economic development. Let's not forget, there are still in China more people living below below the poverty line than there are Europeans. The fact that you have more rich people in uh, China than you have Germans in Germany uh, shouldn't hide the fact uh, of the challenge the country still faces. And it is not a democracy. So the decision-making processes can be captured, so uh, much more easily than they can. And they can capture even in our system, but it's a bit more difficult. So the key point is that moral leadership has been good enough to set the principles, to set the big picture. I don't think it's good enough to make it happen on the ground everywhere where it needs to happen. What can make it happen, Is a model that works. Here is Europe, which carbon neutral poses a competitive threat to those who are not. Just think of what we could do with a trillion euros that we can spare between now and 2050 in imported fossil fuels. That's the kind of money we're talking about here. Even in just just think of a Europe that has a 200 billion euros trade surplus every year, as we've had for the past 20 years, and it's wiped out by our fossil fuel imports. For those who believe that trade surpluses are a necessity, I, I have my own questions about that. Um, but I did spend 30 years in trade. Uh, so leadership has to move from moral leadership to a leadership by successful example. It's the only thing that can work. And then, I don't see why you shouldn't bring the Americans on board. I don't see how even a clone of President Trump could credibly, in 10 years' time, face with a competitive Europe, say, oh well, you know, our way to stay competitive with Europeans is beautiful, clean coal. I don't see how that can happen. If we cannot be competitive, I'm sorry, I, let's face it, those who propose a transformation will not win elections in Europe, if that means a loss of prosperity. So the question of can we can afford it because we're richer. People in, in the street, you have young people who are clearly saying, rightly put it, you are taking decisions that affect us, not you. Uh, you're wrong but you also have people of our age who are saying don't move, don't touch it. You can't destroy, you can't create a model of society and tell people now we're going to destroy it without offering them an alternative. Where is the alternative to mobility through diesel cars? We're trying to offer one, but as long as we don't offer one, don't expect people to give out their diesel it's as simple as that
0: sure. okay I think then we'll go to the uh, we'll go to the audience now uh, John Cooper and then I'll, I'll tell you what I'll, I'll, I'll take one at a time when you I'm not sure there's somebody that does that. Hmm? Okay. Can you just tell us a little bit, uh, just very quickly, who you are so um, the panelists know you. Some, some of them will know who you are, but not all of them.
6: Sure. Thank you, Andre, and thank you to all of the panel. John Cooper, Fuels Europe. We've been working extensively also with the other energy-intensive industries, so my question is very much around the hard-to-decarbonize sectors and uh, the work Can you, that can you keep it closer? because? I, yeah, I sorry. Okay, yeah. So, John Cooper Fuels Europe, we've been working extensively with the energy intensive industries and uh, we've submitted a report to the Commission that was considered in the Clean Planet document. We think it's an excellent document to support the discussion and the dialogue. I've actually got a question about markets and a question about the international role that Europe has. We see the transition in its early stages as being significantly expensive. And we currently have a regulation that focuses very much on manufacturing. The ETS applies at the point of manufacture. It's very clear we need a stronger carbon price. But if you apply it to manufacturing and then you have trade which has no mention of climate and you can bring in products that compete with European industries, whether you're making steel or cement or fertilizer or jet fuel, the current incumbent in the market is the high emitting technology. If you allow that on sale in Europe, that some of the population, some of the businesses will buy that. There's a fundamental question. Do we regulate at the point of manufacture or at the point of going to market in terms of the demand in Europe? It's a, it's a it's, you know, philosophical concept that we've got to think about because at the moment, both are on the market and we've got to think through what, do, what are you actually incentivizing? So that, that's the first point. The second point is, what is the role internationally for Europe here? Uh, Mauro, you, you said here, we're going to send a powerful signal to the rest of the world or some words like that. We, we do that on a number of issues already. How well does that work globally, really? You know, if, if you're an international investor in Wall Street or Mumbai and you look at Europe having a tougher target, does that make it a more attractive place? Thank, thank you. I'll, I'll take a couple of questions in order to be able
0: to uh, there's, there's a lady there back at, at the back Sorry, I can't see you very well, but if you yeah. tell us who you are please yes.
7: hello yeah. My name is Conrad from Daimler um,
0: from da- Daimler, Daimler. Daimler okay.
7: Mercedes. Um, I'm not going to go into too much to the Dieselgate, otherwise my butt pressure might go up. But <laughs> I just want ta- well. to uh, yeah. I just ta- say two things. Dieselgate was about pollutant emissions and not CO2. And CO2 actually went up last year because less diesels were sold. That's the only thing I want to say about it. Okay. Um, about the discussion, thank you very much. And I think it's um, very good that we have a vision for 2050. Um, but I think what needs to be done, we need to define what is sustainable. Um, is it CO2, is it less plastic, is it less chemicals? All those are in- interacting together and reducing one will always have effect on the other. Well, I think we have to have a very good um, discussion on this. We have, we have now the circular economy proposal also on the table <coughs> that will all have an effect on it. Um, a second question is on the geopolitical consequences. Um, what will happen if we reduce our dependency on oil? Um, we will be depending from raw materials, meaning China, Congo, which are all very well—not China, but Congo—is very unstable. Um, how will this affect, on an international basis, the whole structure? Um, and. I think one thing what has was said by Ms. Karcher, um, um, I think we really have to look at the transition. The social impacts should not be underestimated. We need to get all stakeholders on board. So in the end, it just has to be cost efficient, that transition, otherwise we're not going to get there.
0: Thank you very much. Let's try and keep the, the comments short, then like, yeah. you know, go to questions if you can. And there's a gentleman here in, in the front, and then we'll, we'll come back to... Uh,
8: Hi, Andreas Kraft from Agora and Agivenda. Um, one thing that wasn't talked about so far, and I think in the discussion on 2050, um, now that it's um, being reframed with net zero, is not being discussed enough is uh, at climate adaptation. Because um, it's it's been a, a, a tricky topic um, for a long time with mitigation advocates, because they're afraid by talking too much about it, Adaptation you distract from mitigation topics Uh, here. It's framed very clearly in the net zero conversation about what what we want to avoid but every tenth of a degree matters Uh, and uh, When we look at our climate pathways, we essentially ignore climate impacts so Do we need to make that a stronger part of the conversation and stop ignoring it or Um, Is this just uh, the the burden of the conversation on mitigation that you constantly, essentially don't ignore it, but you you, you tone it down? Thank you, I'll I'll stop here. Um, Who wants to start? Mauro, I
0: think, inevitably, inevitably, what what can
1: I say? Um, Well, let me start with the last one. I think you're absolutely right. It is high time that we bring adaptation back into the conversation. Uh, in a big way, uh, in many, for many reasons. A, because when we talk about the counterfactual to, the, to a transformation strategy, I think Silke was making that point earlier. And, uh, we also have to look at what's the cost. What's the real counterfactual? The real counterfactual is not only a business as usual system which perpetuates a number of dependencies that are growing increasingly uncomfortable. It's a system where we are under competitive pressure. It's a system which will be expensive to modernize. It has to be modernized, we can't stay where we are. And there's a question of the cost of adaptation. It's a system which will be increasingly threatened by, uh, by adaptation costs. And let's be very clear, it's going to get worse. I think stopping at 1.5 degrees, assuming we get there, is going to require a much bigger effort of adaptation we've seen today. I think it's high time that we start that conversation. Um, Not an easy conversation. That's all I will say at this stage. Uh, But I don't believe that there was a point in not having a mixture of mitigation and adaptation, especially in the international context. It may have blurred the effort to establish the objective. Now we have the objective. We have the objective, we have the working method, we have all we need. I think it's time to complete the picture. Um, John, how to decarbonize sectors. <laughs> you know perfectly well that we have a combination of both, and we need to continue to have a combination. Well, I'm not claiming that. The combination we have is perfect. If it was perfect, we would all be happy. We're not. But, and I did say, you know, in, in the analysis, we've pretended Europe was an island to show what's theoretically possible. When it comes to make it really possible in policy terms, which comes immediately after having had an endorsement of the objective, We'll have to look at what is our international angle. Having said that, I spent the past 30 years listening about complaints about delocalization, about loss of competitiveness, about how we were not productive. And not much of that has come to pass. I think our economy is a lot more resilient than we give it credit for. Yet we have, we have an issue. We have an issue of imported carbon. We have an issue of what we export. I don't think you have a silver bullet. Uh, I don't think that moving towards mark regulation at the market is going to work because the inevitable consequence of that is border barriers. With border barriers, our economy collapses. We do not have the making of an autarkic economy even if we wanted one and most of us don't want one. So you do need a combination of uh, pressure at the point of manufacturing, because the manufacturers have to change the way they manufacture. You have the need to instruments to lessen the competitive pressure that this brings from abroad, and we have those instruments, but we also have to use them intelligently. It's not just a question of the free allowances. There's a lot of member states giving state aids for indirect cost compensation. One thing that we should look at that is inevitable it 's necessary. The Commission should continue to authorize those state aids, but we should make them conditional, as we 've always done in the past. We should make the expenditure of public money to support industry conditional on industry showing that they are doing their part in eliminating the root causes of the problem uh, it 's a long process, but it has to work in tandem um, I did not talk about an international signal. I'm fed up with signals. I feel sometimes like a a semaphore. Uh, We give signals all over the place. I was talking about offering an alternative model of economic development, one that actually works. I cannot tell you we will do it. I can tell you if we will not do it for ourselves, the last of our preoccupations is what happens in China will have enough trouble on adaptation to climate change at home to worry about what happens in China. So in my view, we are condemned to succeed. If we do succeed in having a workable and competitive economic climate neutral model, I really fail to see why other countries should not do the same. It would be a level of madness rarely seen on, on, on this planet. Um, sustainability definition yes sure uh, climate change is a planetary threat it's not going to go to make go away uh, the shorter term problems that we have nor is it going to make go away the fact that we have also created an unprecedented level of environmental degradation which has a whole load of additional unpleasant effects some of which contribute to climate change, some which are completely different. Uh, yeah, OK. As I said, we live in a complex society. We've complicated and we've uh, uh, done ourselves damaging complicated ways. Well, I'm afraid we'll have to adopt complex policies to deal with the problem. So sustainability, apart from the fact that it continues to be hard to explain the word to most people, um, still is an issue. And it's not just climate. Plastics will continue to be an issue. Biodiversity will continue to be an issue, and I don't think that we can make straight choices. One is the priority. Forget every, everything else. Um, geopolitical consequences. Yes, it's a risk. I'm not aware Congo has interfered with our electoral process yet, for instance. So you know, one else also make one's choices in terms of uh, what kind of dependencies uh, you have. Um, and that is one of the reasons why I think that even though the technologies we're talking about are technologies that we have and we know, uh, some of them require still a very important effort in terms of, of research and development. And batteries is one of them. Uh, and it is not a given that we have to continue to live and work with the generation of batteries that we, uh, that we have today. There are signs that you can develop uh, different matters. We need to spend the right money for that, and that is an urgent decision. In my view, that's my personal opinion. It's one of the first policy consequences of endorsing (coughs) climate neutrality, is to make the right choices in terms of what technologies, what range of technologies needs to be refined and needs research expenditure now, not in five years and 10 years' time.
0: Zuka? Catherine,
2: after that? Um, Maybe just just briefly on the question of of demand, on development of uh, technologies, and um, how to bring them to the breakthrough. Um, I think we have some instruments here on the the European level. We have the question of state aid rules. Are they really still fit to what we need? Do they sometimes um, inhibit the um, the support for climate-friendly technologies. Then there's a question, how can we use public demand? And how can we make a public household, public budgets climate-proof? That's a discussion that we'll have to have in the um, multi-annual financial framework. Um, Not just the the percentage we are wanting to pay for climate, the climate quota of um, 25, maybe more percent. Um, But also what happens to the rest? The rest also needs to be Paris-compatible. So, um, so we need to work on the financing side. And I think when, when it comes to the breakthrough of technology, we have one thing that, that helps us and that's positive tipping points. We have tipping points when we have been supporting renewable that at some point they become cheaper than other technologies and then they start developing by themselves. And we've seen that through the um, support of economies of scale, through feed in tariffs in the renewable sectors that have made uh, um, photovoltaics and um, wind um, economically viable. They win. Um, they win tenders in many parts of the world now, so um, they they don't they need some support somewhere, but um, generally they are economically viable and we need to have the same sort of development of the technologies and then the economies of scale for other technologies, ranges of technologies, um, that's the battery technology or maybe more generally the storage technologies. It's a question of um, power to gas, power to fuel. How do we best do that, and um, the questions of how do we decarbonize industries, talking about um, producing steel um, with hydrogen, all these things they have to be developed, but then they have to be brought up to scale, and that has to be thought together, I think.
3: Yeah, brief, briefly, um, the pricing and, and, and industry um, in relation to the, the rest of the world, um, I think you said in, in, in your, not now, but um, uh, in, in the beginning I said you said that European institutions are incredibly efficient uh, in the way they um, work. Uh? It, it takes a while, but we get there. That's true unless it relates to subjects where you need unanimity in the council. There we get nowhere, absolutely nowhere. And taxation is one of them. Um, normally, if you would look to good climate policy towards your big industry, uh, the the carbon intensive industry, you you should do what is the most efficient and the most easy implementable, that is a carbon tax, right? Instead of a very complicated ETS system. Well, we did the ETS system because we were not able to get a carbon tax through in the council. It's impossible with the unanimity. That's why we have a very complicated and um, working but not, not, not to the full satisfaction. <laughs> and now we're discussing um, a carbon um, border tax to try and solve your problems. Um, I, I think, again, I'm not too optimistic about getting there in, 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 the, in the council. But it would be helpful if also the industry would start pushing for getting rid of unanimity on taxation, because it's it's the the, the natural uh, the natural way forward. I think I, I know it's not easy. Eh? It's, it's uh, um, but up until that moment, we will have to work with the ETS system with this, which is related to the industrial process at, and not to the access of the markets. Eh? Um, uh, and that's why I said what I said uh, with regard to trade. I, I absolutely believe that we then need to take our trade agreements as a sort of leverage. To make sure that we do not get all the filth uh, produced in the rest of the world on our markets, that would not just be right—not for our industry and not for uh, not for our consumers. I think that's a discussion uh, that we will that we will face uh, in the near future.
0: The second round of questions. Uh, I think there's a gentleman over here that I will try and get the, the microphone somehow.
9: Thank you, Anska Kiene with Greenpeace. Um, it's interesting that almost five years after the uh, EU signed up to the Paris Agreement, we see that in that term of the commission, the emissions have flatlined or even are in the increase of about 1%. So that strikes me that uh, uh, we've lost again five years in the, in, the window is closing. And that is reiterated by the IPCC report, which says we have 10 years to turn climate ambition into tangible climate action. And tangible climate action means reducing emissions next year and the year after. And so for me, that is pretty clear that the next parliament and the next commission is two terms. Those need to be climate parliaments and climate commissions. one element of a social just transition is the principle of polluter pays. We're not asking the consumer to bear the bunt of the transition, but actually the industry who continues with the business of polluting.
0: well, Uh, there's a gentleman over there. Uh, Jörg, apologies, I'm not, okay. Can you tell us who you are, please?
5: Uh, Stefan Sobias, uh, um, Community of European Railways, CR here in Brussels. I noted there was some disagreement in the panel on Germany's leading role or not in climate action. Uh, I also heard from you, Ms. van Rem, that you uh, uh, favoured intermediates, uh, that you stressed the importance of intermediate targets, and I think that is where Germany might come in. Germany in its climate action plan of 2016, Klimaschutzplan, uh, has very detailed targets per sector uh, for example for transport the target to reduce co2 by 40 to 42 percent by 2030 compared to 1990 level and my question to the panel is whether you think that this could provide uh, an example or, or even a blueprint for Europe to have such intermediate and also sectorial targets.
0: Thank you. And there was the gentleman over, over there, I think you had your hand up.
1: Uh, thank you. Uh, Antonio Garcia, Banco Santander. My question to the panel um, is uh, what role do you see for the financial sector in this uh,
0: long journey? And number two, um, we have seen the Commission uh, putting together different uh, ambitious programs like uh, Capital Markets Union, Banking Union, and so on and so forth that still are in the making. Why do we have to think that this time is going to be uh, a successful uh, uh, objective and ambition? Thank you. Well, I I won't go, I don't want to make this a, I mean, it's always a temptation to make it a dialogue with with the DG, but Um, Who wants to start? Kathleen?
3: Uh, I agree um, and and also a little bit disagree with with what you said um, from Greenpeace. Um, I agree when it comes to the implementation, um, then you're absolutely right. Um, We didn't make the change during this term. What we did do, um, uh, we did um, change and adopted a lot of uh, existing legislation um, to what should be done to uh, adjust to the Paris Agreement, like ETS, renewable energy. Um, I always say, when I'm back home, which is the same as here, Uh, then I always say, um, if we would only implement, oh, sorry, only implement um, the the things we decided the last couple of years in Europe, then we would make huge improvement in Belgium. And that goes for a lot of of the member states. So um, I also try to be positive, realistic and then try to be very ambitious for the future. Um, We need to implement what we decided, this this legislation, but I absolutely agree the next parliament and and commission um, should should, um, make the real game changing. I want to say just one thing about that, because um, uh, as long as we have the economic governments that we have today in Europe, meaning the very strict budgetary rules um, uh, for the the budget of the national member states combined with the European semester that is mainly focused on economic performance, um, uh, liberal economic performance of our markets, we cannot make that game changer. It's just not good enough to have all these sectoral... Um, uh, legislation and even a climate law would not be sufficient enough if we do not change that economic governance. I'm not saying that we don't need healthy budgetary uh, rules, um, but these healthy budgetary rules need to be there to make that change. To make that transition we will need an awful lot of money, an awful lot of money. You need to give the room. room. To the, not the room, the, the 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 space to the member states to do these huge investments. Make and change in economic governance is is uh, is absolutely key in that. And the same goes for the financial sector. I think for the very first time, after the banking crisis, dealing with the banking crisis, we now try to move the financial se- sector into that sustainable um, uh, agenda as well. I, but I'm not a specialist in that, but we just had an agreement in the Parliament and the Council on sustainable um, financing. Um, I think my people said, um, in my group it was not good enough, but. It all goes in, 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 in the same direction. And you see um, we, what we do uh, at the political level, it's now all already very much pushed uh, by the streets. We yesterday had a, um, a, a manifestation uh, at the BNP Paribas. Um, uh, it, was, it, was not a, it was a quite a tough one, but um, you see that people also um, uh, try to make a very key issue about changing the financial sector.
0: Uh, Mauro, there was one question on uh, intermediate targets now, Mm -hmm. you've made it quite clear this is a vision uh, document, but maybe you want to react to that.
1: One general point first, sorry, Europe is a very complicated democracy. I mean, I totally agree with the objective you set out, and if the next two commission in parliament are climate commission in parliament, nobody will be happier. Will it happen? I don't know yet, to be honest. Um, One of the reasons, sorry, I do my Cato game. We need the endorsement of this big objective is because if you have that endorsement, the next commission, next parliament cannot help confronting themselves with it. Uh, Whatever they think, whoever they are, whether they're convinced or not of their own, they have that, and they have to deal with it. Uh, the And asking industry to pay, well, we are asking industry to pay. On the other hand, let's not forget that beyond a certain point, that means asking producers to pay, and asking producers to pay means asking uh, citizens to pay. So the, the, the whole challenge we have is how we arrange a transition with the right... Let's not forget, this is the first time Europe is confronted with a real life deadline. In our decision making process, the victim of any difficulty is the timetable. We more or less do everything what we want to do. Very often slowly, much more slowly than we want. Perhaps not hundred percent, perhaps ninety percent a little bit slower. This time we have what is very close to real world deadline, and we have to learn to handle that. Uh, and we are not yet fully equipped for that. Now, on the targets, it goes back to the same issue of complexity. I don't think that you can, at the European level, meaningfully develop a set of targets for each industry, each sector, within each member state. Yes, we could. Uh, Would it be meaningful? I think what we're trying to do is to create the right articulation. It isn't perfect, but it's improving. If you just look at the <coughs> difference between the targets that we had in the effort sharing decision and the targets we have in the effort sharing regulation, you see the difference in the level of the ambition, in the clarity of the targets. Don't forget the governance regulation, where we're not just setting big targets for Europe, sometimes target for member states, We're asking member states, now you tell us how you're going to implement them. Are you going to use sectoral targets? Are you going to use something else? Give us a plan. And the plans, they're public, we've published them. If you look at them, most of them are not very good in absolute terms, but if you look at the fact this is the first time every member state has a meaningful plan, that we have a process for dialogue among member states about What's good and what's less good in a plan, how you do a proper plan, that the Commission will issue a recommendation, that these plans will be revised, and I think at the end of the year we have a much better set of plans than we have today. If you look at the fact, it's the first time that we are actually going into the collectively into the detail of how you implement this policy and this legislation, it's a gigantic step forward. Uh, It will take a few years to produce results, I'm sorry. Yes, we, signed, we agreed in Paris in 2015, but then we ratified it. We spent five years enacting the legislation that begins to implement it. And I underline begins three times. It doesn't actually fully implement it. But five years ago, what did we have? We had the 2020 targets. How good were they? So I think the challenge is that we will not do things fast in Europe. Europe isn't fast. On the other hand, think of one thing, who has done most in terms of implementing actually the Paris Agreement in the world? Not one country with the so-called efficient and fast decision-making system has done a fraction of what Europe has been able to put together. So it works. Uh, It works with the faults that we know very well. Uh, And sometimes we are able to correct them, sometimes we are not. Financial sector, yes, the capital union, the banking union, we also now have to deal with the, uh, the fallout of that. One other problem we have, as you know very well, we've put your industry under pressure to be even more aware of risk than before. Now we're going to ask you to finance much riskier operations because there are new technologies, there are new business models, new services. Uh, We need to finance renovation of individual buildings, of social housing, not the kind of risk profile that your industry particularly affects. Um, So the Sustainable Finance Action Plan is fundamental. It's only a start, it's the basics. It's a basic architecture, what is green and what is greenwashing, Uh, what are green bonds, what do you have to tell your customers if they come to you and say, "I want to do green investment"? How do you advise them? That's the basics We have to move beyond. How do we create incentives that persuade your industry to put its money into the kind of uh, activities that we want for the climate transformation, including financing, you know, not particularly well-off individual homeowners? Just to give you one one basic example, Uh, that I think is going to be a huge priority for the next uh, mandate for all the institutions, Commission, Parliament, Council, that's going to be a big priority I think. Uh,
0: Silke, any, any comments from your side?
2: Um, to the question um, should should Europe have sectoral targets and would that be a, would uh, the German approach be a good example well in a way it's the other way around uh, the Germ- Germany took the example of Europe to have yearly budgets and then we just went one step further and broke them down to sectoral uh, budgets I I and I think ultimately it could be done on a European level <laughs> but I think as we said before we need the societal <laughs> debates, we need the consensus building the consensus finding and as things are at the moment the societal debates are happening on nation state level so I think it will be much much easier to um, to implement sectoral targets if it's done like it's in, done in Germany that the discussions are on on a national level where people speak the same language just for one thing. <laughs> Um, but I think one thing that's really important about the, sect- the sectoral target So I would recommend it to all other member states to do the same is that they have a similar effect as the um, net zero target in, in 2050 to the debate because it changes the debate of what we need to do Well, we just had a minus 40 percent or now minus 55 percent for, for, uh, for uh, 2040 target every sector could say okay, yes, and the remaining ag- percent are mine and all the others can reduce because it's more difficult in my sector but when you have sectoral targets every sector knows they have to do their share and when you intermediate targets that are not zero you can only make that really visible to every sector if you have sectoral targets so I think yes it's a good idea.
0: Well we'll we'll start closing now so I'll I'll wrap up in a few seconds and then I'll just ask each of you to give your kind of last 30 second clip if I may but what I take from this discussion so far that we are not the masters of the clocks and that we are we do need a very strong debate with a with a strong public mandate a public consensus for this and that will be followed at once we reach that consensus tools and policies and choices that would need to be to be made. Uh, how that puts us toward the 2030 uh, uh, and the uh, discussion that we'll have in in New York in in September, the importance of trade and and how how this, all is captured in trade agreements, uh, how do we define a mandate? We we do have to reach that that mandate for the next commission and next parliament to feel it has that mandate and not backtrack. So these are a number of the things that I picked up from, from our discussion. Georg, let's start very quickly with a, uh, with a 30 second clip uh, with your last uh, comments.
4: Yeah, um, so we will have a, a couple of tough questions on, uh, on important choices ahead. And um, what uh, I like to, to reiterate is that uh, for those choices to be made, we, we need proper analytical basis uh, to, uh, to be able to, uh, uh, to see these trade-offs in a, uh, in a fair way. For example, when discussion, uh, discussing about sectoral targets, I think the European approach with national energy and climate plans is a good one, but we need to complement this bottom-up approach also with, uh, with top-down benchmarks that are able to, to tell us what a good uh, direction of travel is, uh, is going to be. Silga, any last comment?
2: Yeah, so coming to the analysis, I think we have the analysis that shows us that it's doable and I think that needs to be communicated. We have also the analysis that shows us that we have to act fast, so we have to start now implementing the measures and also we need the consensus so that this can work in a democratic European Union. And for that consensus, I think the message that I gave at the beginning is important to tell people, look, we can't just go on like this. There will be a transition and either we shape the transition or we're just rolled over by a transition that comes to us. And I think that would help shape the discussion in a more innovative and forward-looking way.
0: Um, Mauro, transition and a consensus, hopefully not a UN type consensus.
1: You know, maybe in 50 years time there'll be a historian who will say, you know, in 2019, Europe was in a cusp and it triggered a huge transformation and that transformation triggered the, a change in the world. We don't have that leisure of this bird's eye view. We're banging, we're up to our neck in it. All I can say that I wasn't born a, tra- a climate warrior I've been spent a year in this job and I've rarely seen things moving so fast as they're moving now. They're moving extremely fast. We may be on a cusp. We should behave as if we were on one and we should really put a huge effort in starting the process of transformation now. We know it's gonna be slow, it's gonna be painful, it's gonna be complicated We'd be just as well started now because I don't think we have any alternative. Uh, I think the alternatives, if anybody stopped and think for half an hour, are pretty unpleasant to contemplate. Kathleen,
3: well, we are. um, We we still have two plenary sessions, um, and then European politics will go into a campaign. Um, uh, So we're we're at the end of the term. So we're now need to prepare the next uh, the next term and uh, we are living in uh, challenging times and one of the major challenges is climate um, and um, I have to say for the very first time I have the feeling that we can be on the one hand be very hopeful because things are changing um, on the other hand um, there's a lot of pressure on uh, democratic institutions because for the very first time we're facing with a challenge, where we need absolutely to take into account what future generations are thinking about this. This is not just us, the people here in the room, being um, mainly white, um, being the elite. uh, We are the elite eh, in Brussels here. Uh, um, uh, We are challenged by um, a new generation on the street um, that wants us to do things differently. So that is, I think, hopeful. Let's try try to to make that hopeful and Um, After the next European election, it's either uh, make that change, or we will be facing uh, even future difficulties.
0: And there's no better way than to uh, segue into what you said, is that we are heading into an election, and this is a, hopefully, is going to be a strong point of debate from all points of view, and this is what European democracy should be. But before we go into the election, I'd like to ask you to uh, give a hand of applause to our panellists. Thank you.
5: Many thanks. Thank Good you one.